Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, God and Art, we are going to be exploring God from the perspective of all different kinds of artistic medium. We will be talking about God from the perspective of painting, sculpture, architecture, literature, poetry, film, and photography. My hope is that through these mediums, we will come to a deeper understanding of how God is present in our everyday lives. Enjoy. Our scripture reading for this morning does come from that book of songs that Katie was talking about, Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the destroying storms pass by. I cry to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame those who trample on me. God will send forth his steadfast love and his faithfulness. I lie down among lions that greedily devour human prey. Their teeth are spears and arrows, their tongues sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my soul. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness extends as the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's great to see you all here. Today we are continuing our God in Art series, and we are talking about God in music. And I'm sure this can be a revolutionary concept for you that you can find God in music, right? You all never knew that before, me bringing it up this morning. But the fact is that I think that everybody in here, at some point or another, has experienced God in music. You found God's presence in music that you listen to, and I hope that with all the variety of wonderful music that we offer here at the church, that at some point you have felt closer to God as a result of the music that has been presented in this sanctuary. But even if you haven't, I'm sure that you have felt God's presence in other venues in your life. Is that true? Would you agree with me on that? Okay. So you can feel God perhaps it's in another church. Perhaps you've felt it at a concert or a symphony. Perhaps you've felt it just specifically listening to a CD or on your iPod. Maybe that's where you felt it. But the fact is, I think that the idea of finding God's presence in our lives in music is a universal human experience. Everybody knows it on some level or another. And the question I would like to explore today is why is that the case? Why is it that almost every single human being who believes in God has had an experience of God through music. And to get into this today, I'd actually like to tell you a story 
about a man who dedicated his life to bringing a piece of music into the world that he believed came from the heavens. The story, it begins in the English countryside in the mid-1970s. If you've ever been to the English countryside, you know that what they like to do with their free time is congregate at pubs and drink a lot of alcohol. That's what they like to do. And so, of course, somebody has to own those pubs, and one of the people who owns a pub out in the English countryside is a man named Stuart Sharp. Stuart Sharp, he owns this pub along with his wife, Joe. They have one daughter, and Joe is pregnant with their second child, a son, who they plan to name Ben. But when she goes into labor, things do not go as expected. She suffers from a uterine rupture, which means that she's bleeding profusely. And she's in one of these countryside clinics, so they don't really have the resources to deal with her situation. They transfer her to a hospital that's in the city, but in the midst of that transfer, she bleeds out so much that her son dies, and they almost are unable to save her life, but they're able to do it in the end. Now, once she's recovered, they are clearly devastated by this turn of events. And they go back to their home in the countryside, and they bury their boy in a shoe-sized grave in the ground. They say a few words, and they go to bed. Now, later that evening, Stuart Sharp, he's having a dream. And in that dream, he's back at the graveside, and he sees his son rise up out of the grave, floating towards heaven, and he hears these angels that are singing above him. And one of the angels, they come down, and they start speaking to Stuart. And this angel says to him, Ben is safe now. And in these circumstances... We always try to leave a gift. And your gift is that you will remember everything. And so when Stuart wakes up from this dream, he is able to remember with crystal clarity every single note of the music that was being sung by those angels. I think it's important for you to understand at this point in the story that at this time, Stuart was not religious. In fact, he was an atheist. He didn't even believe in God. So he wasn't entirely sure how to process this event, this experience that he had had. But he came to the conclusion that he was put on this earth for a very specific purpose. And because this music was so persistent in his mind, he came to believe that his purpose in being here on this earth was to write and record this music that he could hear. There was only one little problem with this grand plan of his. He had never played a note of music in his life. So Stuart, he decides where he needs to go is to London, because London is the center of music in England. So he tells his wife, Joe, he says, we're going to go to London, we're going to take the kids there, it's going to be this great experience, and I'm going to bring this music into the world. And Joe... She doesn't really believe him because she thinks, well, you're just going through a depression. You know, it's understandable given what's happening. But he says, no, in six months we're going to go. And every month he tells her, he says, you know, in five months, in four months, we're going to London. And the day comes and he gets in his car and he says, okay, guys, let's go. And Joe says, what are you doing? We got a, we got a pub here we have to run. We have our daughter. We can't just up and leave everything. And he says, well, no, I'm going to London for this music. So he gets in his car and he leaves and he goes to a city that he's never been to before in his entire life. It's brand new to him. And he gets to this city 
And he thinks to himself, the angels will tell me what to do next. And so he sits there, and the angels tell him absolutely nothing. (laughs) And so he's sitting in his car, and he starts living out of his car. And after six months, Joe just divorces him because he's not around to take care of their kid. He's not there helping out with all the business. And that's understandable on her part. She's like, I'm just going to move on. Clearly, you're doing your own thing. So he runs out of money. And he has to sell his car in order to survive. And now he's living homeless on the streets. So he's lost his family. He's lost his home. He's lost his job. And the only thing that this guy has left is this music that is rattling around in his brain. And he lives like this for five years on the streets. And then one day, he's walking down the street of London, and he comes by this second-hand shop, and he looks in the window of the shop, and he sees a guitar. And he thinks to himself, maybe if I can get that guitar, maybe I can get these notes that are in my mind, maybe I can get them out into the world. And so he goes into the store, and he starts talking to the shopkeeper. Now, clearly, he doesn't have enough money to be able to afford the guitar for the asking price. And she doesn't want to sell it to him, but eventually she says, well, what do you want this for? And he says, to write a symphony. Now, you have to realize... This is a homeless guy standing here trying to say, I need this guitar so I can write a symphony. And you don't tend to write symphonies on guitars, by the way. But she believes him enough to come down on the price, and she gives him the guitar. He takes the guitar back to the homeless shelter where he's staying, and he starts working out some of the notes, some of the melody lines. And then he goes and buys a really cheap old tape recorder, and he starts playing these melody lines into the tape until he has about two hours worth of the recording. Now, all this time, he's thinking to himself, what I need to do is, I'm going to go to the BBC Studios, which happened to be right down the street from his shelter, and he's trying to get noticed by somebody. And so he's out there with a guitar playing, and most people, of course, are just walking by him because they assume he's just a guy who's begging for change. But then one day, there's this guy who walks past, and he looks at Stuart, and he keeps walking, and he stops, and he comes back, and he goes, what are you doing? And Stuart says, I'm writing a symphony. And he says, oh, so you're a composer. And Stuart says, no, I don't know how to write music, but I have little bits and pieces of it here on this tape. And the man says, well, where are you living? And Stuart says, right here, you're looking at it. (laughs) And he says, well, I'm a jazz musician. Why don't you come back with me to my house, and we'll take some of these strummings that you have on your tape, and we'll see if we can work it out on the piano a little bit more. And so, of course, Stuart says, that's great. So he gets up, he follows this man to his house. The name of this musician was Anthony Wade. Now, Anthony Wade, he comes home, and his wife is straight up livid with him that he has brought this homeless guy home with him. And she's like, are you out of your mind? We have a newborn baby, and you're bringing this guy in. He could be a murderer for all we know. And he says, you know, just don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Make him a bowl of soup. He'll be gone in a couple of hours. Well, that couple of hours, it turns into six weeks that he stays with Anthony Wade. And after that six-week time period, they've scored the entire symphony. And Anthony, he turns to Stuart after they finish the whole thing, and he says, I want you to know that this is good. This is really good. In fact, it deserves to be played by the London Philharmonia Orchestra. And even more than that, this is going to make you famous. Now, Stuart, you can imagine how overjoyed he was because he doesn't know anything about music. 
And so he's just had this stuff in his head. He doesn't know whether it's good or bad. And here's a real musician telling him that it's going to be really good. But there was just one little catch. In order to get it played by the London Philharmonia, he was going to have to pay for it himself. And the cost? More than a million dollars. Because in order to do it, you have to realize it's not just getting the London Philharmonia. You have to pay for orchestrators and arrangers. You've got to get a rehearsal choir. You've got to pay for the studio to put all these people into it. And even before you can do any of that, you have to get an electronic version of the symphony, which, of course, requires hiring a studio, and you've got to get technicians and computers and all these really expensive things. Now, can you imagine how demoralizing that would be? Here Stewart is. He's on the cusp of realizing this dream, everything he struggled for, and he comes to realize that in order to bring his dream into the world, it's going to cost a million dollars. A million dollars! And realize, this is a homeless guy who doesn't have a penny to his neck. So what does Stuart Sharp go out and do? He goes out and he makes a million dollars. He starts off by working in the homeless shelter where he was staying. And when he saves up enough money from that, he goes out and he gets these various sales jobs that pay only commission. There's no salary, it's just commission. And he finds that he's pretty good at it, actually. And then, after he's saved up enough money from that, he starts buying and flipping houses until he's bought and flipped enough houses that he has a million dollars. took him 15 years to do this. And then he goes back to Anthony Wade's house, he knocks on the door, and he says, okay, I did what you said, I got a million dollars, let's go make some music. And Anthony Wade is standing here staring at him like, is this the same guy from 15 years earlier? He can't even believe it. And he actually had to show him his bank statement to prove to him that he wasn't trying to pull one over on him. And he says, okay, let's go do it. And so they go and they create the electronic version of the symphony. It takes them working every day for five years to make this thing. And finally, the day has come. He's got a meeting with the conductor of the London Philharmonia Orchestra, a man by the name of Alan Wilson. And so he goes and he sees Alan Wilson. He tells him the whole story from front to end. And you know what Alan Wilson says? Thanks, but no thanks. Even if you have the money, the London Philharmonia is not going to play a piece written by a homeless man with no musical ability. Now you have to realize, Stuart was crushed by this. Because he had handed him the score and the electronic version, right? The tape of it. And he wasn't even going to listen to it. Wasn't even going to listen to it. But Stuart, he was used to this kind of rejection. And so he just got up and went back to the jobs that he had been working five years earlier. Well, a few weeks later, he gets a call on the phone from Alan Wilson. And Alan is actually crying on the other end of the line. And he says, Stuart... I have to tell you, this is nothing short of amazing. And your music absolutely deserves to be played by the London Philharmonia. I am so sorry that I dismissed you before, but I just didn't think that it was possible for someone with no musical ability to write something this beautiful. And so from there, Stuart has to go back. He rescores the entire symphony to make it fit into all these people who are going to be doing it with the London Philharmonia. And then he's got to book the orchestra years in advance. And then, one day, Alan Wilson calls and says, the London Philharmonia is now ready to perform your symphony. 
And so they all get together in this huge recording studio in London. They're packing 80 musicians into this room. And all the musicians, you know, they're tuning their instruments. The choir is warming up. And Stuart is wondering, is this going to sound anything like what I heard in my head some 30 years earlier? Remember, it's 30 years of time. Three decades have passed between when this originally happened and now. And then the conductor stands up. He raises his wand, and the orchestra begins to play. And Stewart says that when the choir comes in, he can't tell the difference between the music that's in his head and the music that's being played in the room. That's how exact it is. And when it was all said and done, when the recording had been finished, the members of the orchestra, the choir, they stood up, and they gave Stuart a standing ovation. And Alan Wilson is quoted as saying, I have to admit, I was shocked. I have never seen any orchestra anywhere in the world give any composer an ovation like that before. Stuart Sharp named his piece of music the Angeli Symphony. Now why have I told you this story? Well, first of all, it's an amazing story, is it not? All right. It's 100% true, too, by the way. But the other reason why I've told you this story is because I think this story points to a reality that we all know to be true, but we may not have been able to articulate before. I believe that inside of every single person, there is a tune or a piece of music that is playing inside of our souls. Indeed, I believe that that music is different for every single person in the world. Now, I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that every person has a favorite song that they like to listen to. That's different. It's not the favorite song that you have by your favorite artist that you listen to on your iPod or on the radio. No, no, no. I'm saying that in every single person, within his or her soul, there is this music that is playing. And I believe that this music is a connection with the divine. And the more in touch you are with that music, the more in touch you're going to be with God. If that doesn't make sense to you, let me take it from another perspective. I believe that music is a language. It's a language that underscores our universe. And so when humans, when we communicate, what do we like to use? We like to use words, right? And words are fantastic because they can do great things. They can communicate to other people experiences, thoughts, ideas, things that are going on in our head. But words have their limitations. And one of the greatest limitations of words is conveying feelings and emotions. The fact is that if I get up here and I tell you how I feel, the emotions that are going on, that's probably not going to do it for you. But yet, if I get up here and we play a piece of music that convey those same emotions, you can feel that inside of you, can you not? And then you know exactly how I'm feeling. And that's the beauty of music, is that music can convey something in the world that language cannot. And that is why we use music in our worship services. Because for all the words we use, for all the words I use, I talk a lot, right? For all the words I use, there's a point at which my words are not going to be able to convey the meaning, and that is when the music comes in 
and the music takes over, and the music can convey to you God's presence in a way that I cannot. And I think the reason why this happens, why we are able to feel God's presence in music, is because when you hear the right piece of music, it resonates with that music that exists inside of your soul, and it is as if for a brief moment, the internal world of that music playing inside of you and the external world of that music that you're hearing become one. And I think that's why Stuart Sharp's story is so amazing. Because he didn't just get a glimpse of those two worlds colliding, it became permanent for him. And I can't help but think that the grief that he felt when he lost his son, that that grief actually allowed him to become in touch with that music inside of his soul. Indeed, he was so in touch with it that ultimately it was all he could hear or think about. And isn't it an amazing journey that he went through to bring that into the world for us? But you know, you don't have to write a symphony for somebody to hear the music that is inside of your soul. The psalmist that we read today has this really beautiful saying, and I love this. This is wonderful what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, My heart is steadfast, O Lord. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my soul. Awake, O harp and lyre. Awake the dawn. You know what I think this is talking about? I think this is talking about the idea that when you are in touch with God's love, and this is something we talk about a lot in this church, God's love. When you are in touch with God's love, then you will be in touch with that music that is inside of your soul. And you know what? You don't have to be musical. You don't have to sing like they do or play bells like they do. You're You don't have to do those things. The fact is, you can convey that music to others simply by showing the love that is in your heart. When you radiate that love out, when you show love to others, they can hear the music that is playing inside of you. And let me tell you, this message is very important for us today, given everything that has happened over the last three weeks in this world. There have been acts of terrorism going on in this world that we have watched both inside and outside of this country. And I think many, many people have stepped back and said, what is going on? Why is this happening? And I know that my first reaction when I see all of these things happen, my first reaction is fear, anger, and wanting to react with the same kind of violence that was inflicted upon us giving it right back to them. That's my initial reaction. But then, I step back, and I start to think about the Bible. I start to think about Jesus in the Gospels. And I realize that what Jesus teaches us is the most powerful weapon we possess is the love that we have in our hearts. And I do not stand up here, by the way, and say this simply because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to say what Jesus says. I say that because I believe it. Because I believe that we have an ability to make a difference in this world through the love that we have in our hearts. And you want to know why? Because when you allow somebody to hear that music that is playing inside of you, that love that is playing inside of you, then they have to see you as a human being. And it's a lot harder to put a bullet inside of somebody when you have to look at them as a human being who is exactly like you. When you see each other as being the same. It is a hard thing to do to live up to Jesus' expectations for our lives.
But I do believe, and I have seen again and again throughout history, that when you invest in love, when you invest in loving your enemy, when you invest in turning the other cheek, when you do those things, that at first it is really challenging, but in the long run, it does win. And so I hope that as you leave here today, that you will stand up and that you will abide by what Jesus has taught us. Don't see it as a platitude that we simply look at in the Bible and say, well, that is very nice, but we have other things we need to do. I hope you will see that as something that truly can change the world. By you going out and you showing others the love in your heart, by allowing them to hear that music, you can make the difference in the world that will make this world a better place. And so, be that light in the world. Please stand up and be what Jesus has taught us to be. Don't let go of that. Because when you become the love that God has given to us, it really can make a difference in this world. And we can see this terrorism and these acts of violence, we can see them go away if we are willing to love those who are in our midst. I hope you believe that to be true, because I certainly do. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.